Hello, sir. Good morning. Yes, sir. We're back from our ricin holiday. We've just finished the reports on our uh, ricin trilogy. Uh, I can have that to your desk right now, actually. I'll transfer it over. Yes, sir. The episodes are a lot better now that we've got a second person regularly with us. Where is he? Well, after our little rice and holiday, as it were, um, he picked up a bit of a cold. So uh, he's just gone down to the Temporal Investigations Med Lab um, just to get checked out, basically. Just to make sure he's okay. Um, he, he should be with us pretty short. He should be with us pretty soon. What? There's a new episode incoming. But he's not here yet. I didn't think we were doing solo shows. Oh, no, there's the credits. Oh, he's running late. Um, uh, see if I can readjust. Oh, no, it's just coming through. Looks like we're stuck with it. Okay, I guess it's a solo show then. Okay, uh, guess it's a solo show then. Space time. The ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second, contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, to the 20th century, all the way to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Temporal Trek Podcast. This is Chronodate Season 3 Episode 27 and Season 1 Episode 25 as we end Season 1 of Star Trek Enterprise. There's an entire season of a show finished for the first time on the Temporal Trek podcast. Now, normally this is the bit where I say I'm not alone and I would uh, hand over to my guest to introduce himself or my co-host. Uh, unfortunately, as you had just heard in our little segment at the beginning, he's not feeling too well. He's in our med lab. Uh, hopefully he'll be back, uh, but I don't think he'll be back before the end of this episode. Hopefully, if he has any thoughts, uh, he said that he might record some uh, in his bed uh, in sickbay and uh, maybe send them in. Uh, so I might uh, edit in a little work from home segment in this episode just to get his thoughts on it. Uh, so you're not just listening to my voice the whole time. Now this is a timey-wimey episode. We have some timestamps and I've got to try and remember how to do that again. Um, so the timestamps will relate to one 45 minute episode and then another 45 minute episode. Just to help you line up if you want to watch this before listening to the podcast, the timestamps for this episode are starting at 0 minutes 0 seconds, you then end at 15 minutes and 31 seconds. You then come back at 19 minutes 55 seconds and end at 39 minutes 54 seconds, starting again at 40 minutes 3 seconds to 41 minutes 6 seconds 
and then that is it for Shockwave Part 1. When we get to Part 2, I'll give you the timestamps for there as well. The episode itself opens up with a mess hall. They're meeting for coffee. Um, they are going down to a matriarchal society, a little colony. Um, they haven't mentioned the name of it at this point, but uh, uh, Trip has already started a traitrid. It's time you learned to weigh the possible repercussions of your actions. You've always been impulsive. One pan-fried catfish. I'd show you to the nearest airlock. Maybe this will teach you a lesson. Yeah, I, I know it's a bit of a joke. I know he says it's probably best not to flirt. But given how much he gets into trouble and the massive, massive eye roll that uh, T'Pol gives him, uh, I'm going to go for uh, more the annoyance factor of my trip hatred not on the highest part of it so you know if i'm giving it a, a traitred factor warp factor uh probably you know it's a it's a warp traitred two uh it, it's not massive but it's still an annoyance about the character uh and i kind of hope that as season two comes in uh it does diminish and i figure out at what point i do start to like him uh the traitred is diminishing in terms of how i react to the screen uh he kind of went up towards the end of the season uh, certainly in, in Oasis but he then came back down again as you know you kind of more realised and it was more a fashion choice than anything else that uh, sparked off my traitred uh, those terrible terrible Hawaiian shirts uh, sorry Dan uh, I know you like them but um, just terrible um, there's uh, the colony uh, being started uh, 20 years ago they started with 30 miners and now they have 3,000 miners um, trip starting to sort of talk about you know are there going to be human kids out here are there going to be um you know uh, kids never seeing earth and growing up they just had terra nova about eight months ago uh that should have already been like a, a discussion that would have happened maybe even back then uh so it's a bit weird to be having it now uh this conversation could have easily happened back at terra nova it's a minor quibble but it, it does seem a bit strange to put it in. The nice thing it does lead to, though, is that Archer uh, is discussing making history with every light year. And there's a really nice interplay between Trip and Archer where it's clearly friends talking about it. And Trip is saying, I've heard you say that a dozen times. Um, now, we've never heard him say that in the entirety of season one or even some of the extra episodes that we did before season one, uh, and even back in previous seasons of this podcast, whenever we've seen Archer, he has never said uh, history with every light year. Uh, he maybe is having a micro-singularities moment, if we're calling back to Shuttlepod 1, when uh, everyone seemed to think that T'Pol was going on about micro-singularities, but she never mentioned it before. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if this is some phrase that carries through into the future seasons. As far as I'm aware, I think Archer does say it one more time, but that's about it. But so far in this season, he has not heard it. There's talking about landing protocols, and we're in the shuttle bay after this. Uh, then it going into the shuttlecraft, uh, he sort of makes a joke, oh, I wouldn't be very polite to ignite their atmosphere. They're making a big deal about how dangerous the atmosphere is. And this leads into a kind of semi-plot uh, hole for me, in that if you know that the atmosphere is this dangerous, if you know you have transporters, and you know you have that ability, and it has worked, the transporters haven't exactly shown themselves to be unreliable. 
Archer has already been beamed up once by them. Um, why they didn't beam down? If it was such a risk, such a potential risk to send down the shuttles, um, why not beam a very small landing party uh, to do the greetings? Um, you know, if Hoshi doesn't want to do it, and because she's the translator, um, she wouldn't have to go. Uh, you could have Archer still be the representative. You could have um, Reed maybe as a security element to it and to Pole. Uh, but it, it seemed odd that they're going ahead with the shuttle knowing full well that there is even a modicum of danger about it. Um, Reed though seems to think he's got it all under control and he shuts off the port vents, the impulse vents and manifolds um, earlier than he should. So he's already being that sort of dutiful British person uh, going with the protocols. However, they make their way into the atmosphere and it ignites. Everything is completely washed away in fire. We cut to the credits. Uh, this does not sort of alter our timestamps in any way. And we go straight into sickbay after the credits. Reed is straight in with the defensive. I did my job. You know, there are backups for this sort of thing. There is a nice hint to the, his performance that he's already blaming himself for this, but is trying to convince everyone around him. Just the delivery of the lines, the way he says it. Um, he is already shouldering that burden. And it's a perfect character trait that um, link in with other things we've seen about him. He's more than willing to take the blame, to take the fall, uh, to stand in harm's way. Uh, and we have seen it quite a few times in Star Trek Enterprise, at least in season one. Hoshi is already saying there's no buildings down there, there's no trees, there's no people. Um, yeah, it still comes back to this idea of why didn't they use the transporters? It's such if if everything on this planet can be wiped out with just a single mistake why not then you know you know, swallow your your pride and uh your fear of this new technology and just say look we're not going to take that risk you know we want to see these people we want to come in peace in friendship or if this is a problem uh why why not have the miners send up a craft surely they have a shuttle capability if they're miners how do they move uh, goods up to uh, up to the orbit. Uh, now it could be that people come to them, pick it up, and leave, and that's what's led to the protocols and so forth. But that also begs the question: Why don't they have their own transporters? You know, why, isn't there some other way? Maybe they've got more a trusted transporter system. They could beam Archer and so forth down themselves, not using the Enterprise transporters, which are still fairly brand new, and. It's because of that, it was an unlikely bet for the Suleiman to go along with this uh, elaborate plan that we're going to find out with later. I'm wondering why or how the Suleiman would have known that they would do this, given that the transporters were available technology. Yes, of course, you know, they're taking orders from the future. They would say, well, of course, you know, protocols wise, they're going to go down in a shuttle. That's, it's a reasonable bet for them to do it, but it just happens to be lucky that they've picked this one planet that could be ignited by a shuttle and Archer didn't think of maybe changing the protocol to match. Uh, he's been more than willing to change his mind on certain things, as we've seen in various episodes in season one. Um, it was a big bet, quite a bit of luck on the Suleiman's part that they would go along with staying with shuttles. But, of course, that's the nature of the episode and that's the episode we got. Back on the bridge, Archer is in full moping mode. And it's a big, 
defeated uh, way he holds himself, the gate. Again, the performances in this episode, I think, are, are brilliant. They're, they're just bordering on the sort of melodramatic, but you can see where each of their reactions are coming from. When Hoshi was talking about there's no buildings, there was no trees, there was an almost a stuttering way that she was bringing that information to Archer, that she didn't want to disappoint him, the way she was talking to him, it was believable in that scene. Uh, all of Flox's moments when he's talking about you know checking up on the crew, uh, his response to this heightened emotion in sickbay was still to be the professional doctor that he is. Topol was constantly questioning and being logical and you know, not quite Vulcan explaining as we've seen in previous episodes, but being very direct and almost confrontational from a human perspective. And Archer. Archer's performance right into the bridge, right up to the point where he calls up Forrester uh, and acts even more defeated. I believe that that is how Archer would react. He didn't want to uh, cause this much damage. He came to visit them. He just wanted to see the Paragon colony, and this is where we find out the name of the colony. Uh, temporally speaking, this is where we find out the audience. And hes it's believable that he's here. Would a captain mope that much? I don't know. Uh, yes, grief would be a, a logical way of dealing with things. And this is something that Phlox does say later to, to Paul as she's sort of questioning his rationale. Um, but there's, there's a professional element to being a captain that even though it's early days of Starfleet, there is a detachment that, you know, someone in charge... Uh, and even today, when we think about just a, a regular boss, you know, how many bosses have you had that have felt so detached from the work that you're doing that even when something goes wrong in the business or there's there's some heightened emotion um, regarding some incident at work, the boss has been a little bit more willing to take responsibility, but not quite engaged emotionally. Now, this could just be that Archer is that kind of guy. He, he literally has faith of the heart and wears that heart on his sleeve. Maybe that's what they're going for. But the Archer's defeatedness is believable, but perhaps a little overplayed by this point. Flox, as I said again in sickbay, uh, is saying that it would be unnatural for a, a human to not react in grief. And that does make sense. Uh, and he is, he is acting out of grief. Um, it, it's just that that other bit you know he's he's been in starfleet for well over 15 years at this point that we know of through the temporal trek rewatch um there would at least be i don't know some sense of professional detachment uh he may not have lost anyone but he has certainly um had friends who have been in dangerous situations you know the, the warp test program i'm sure they must have lost other pilots we didn't see aj robinson die in first flight we're back when we watched it just before broken bow but I, I can't believe that there was no casualties whatsoever um it just seemed odd that he hasn't um found a way to at least act like the captain even if in private he isn't and speaking on that when we go to archer's quarters you know, he's uh, looking through the files, he's going through everyone's names of the people who were on the planet. In private, that kind of reaction and grief made sense for him. It just seemed weird that he would carry that into the bridge, 
in a professional context. Um, it, it's it's wonderful to see. It's great bit of acting, and it it's nice to see in Star Trek someone taking a very personal uh, approach to it. But given how long he's had a professional history with Starfleet, I kind of expected that he would have some sort of a way of acting like a captain on a bridge and then a way he would act in private, uh, even if it wasn't as refined as, say, Picard's detachment and how easily he can detach himself from situations, uh, as we will later find out in Star Trek. The bridge send down a probe and get traces of borocarbons, which would only come about from a explosion that would have come from their shuttle pod. And again, coming back to Reed, his reaction is to shoulder that responsibility. You know, the way he kind of like looks away from the screen because he, he can't believe what he did and that it, this must be his fault that he was the one, but he's still trying to convince everyone he knew what he did. Um, it, it's just a nice little bit. And very British uh, saying here, I don't care if it found bread pudding i know i did what i was supposed to do that kind of uh, uh <laughs> falling back onto british sayings um bread pudding absolutely lovely if you haven't had it you're missing out uh bread raisins milk and uh all baked into a nice little pudding great way of using up bread when it's just about on the turn uh so you don't want to throw it all away and lose it all um if you haven't had it lovely bit of custard maybe a bit of ice cream oh gorgeous very nice. I wonder if Chef makes that. Hmm. We'll find out. Archer's uh, in his ready room. He calls in Trip and T'Pol, and we find out that the mission is cancelled and it's going to be delayed for about 10 to 20 years. Trip then brings up a point, as I've been saying before, uh, this is guilt talking you're giving in. This isn't Archer. Um, and like I say, it, it was believable that he would shoulder the responsibility, but even Trip is noticing that he's being so far down the road of being defeated um he hasn't had that that archer's archer response of coming back uh, and thinking about uh, you know a, a way of getting out of it or wanting to find out literally every bit of information he can to maybe make the case to stop it from being 10 to 20 years maybe just a delay of a year uh pending investigation you know something like that but we find out T'Pol and Phlox are going to be taken home. They're going to rendezvous with a Vulcan ship. And that's it. That's going to be it. The The Enterprise's mission is gone. The exploration is over. Uh, there's no more Star Trek. Starfleet is gone. And that's it. Uh, so thank you very much for listening to the Temporal Trek podcast. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. No, no. There's still more to come. Don't worry. Okay, sit back down. Don't just skip to the end of this episode. And that's it. Uh, just just stay right there. I'll, I'll carry on talking. There's a really nice scene and a very rare scene where it's Hoshi and Travis talking about the mission being over and what comes next. Uh, Hoshi's talking about being a prodigy. Um, you know, she hasn't been replaced yet in her Brazilian uh, teaching job. Uh, so she's going to be welcomed back with open arms. And Given everything she's done, given that she was our MVP for 2151, I find it very hard to disagree with her. I can't imagine any school refusing the person who has brought about at least 22 known first contact new language situations to language schools. Uh, and the, the experience with Lingacode, including using it as a mathematical language to talk to a non-humanoid life form. Uh, and it is the first time 
we have seen a human talking to a non-humanoid um, using the UT uh, in Temporal Trek in the way that we've been watching everything. It's the first time we saw that kind of interaction. Uh, so she is a first in so many things. She would be practically a god in the language world, in linguistics. Then it goes to Travis. What would he be? And uh, yeah, being a freighter captain, probably not as appealing as being the pilot on the fastest ship that's ever been in Starfleet history. They just pushed it to Warp 5 just a few episodes ago, uh, back in Fallen Hero. But there is a nice moment where it's just one line where they talk about um, what people back home think. And this is worrying Travis, that he's worried that people will see that they've made more of a mess of things rather than you know, the optimistic uh, exploration mission that they set out on. Uh, and very interesting that Hoshi is straight away leaping to the defense of Archer, the crew, the mission, um, and that she would give everyone a fat lip. And uh, I would like to see that. I would like to see uh, someday Hoshi uh, just sucking someone on the jaw for saying something bad about the crew. I don't know why. Uh, something about Hoshi getting some, some much-needed uh, valve release, some pressure release by uh, letting off some steam. Uh, on some xenophobic nobody uh, back on Earth. Just want to watch that. But it is an instance of Travis having a scene. It's nice he got a scene. Um, it's very rare, as we've seen in Season 1, and probably going to get rarer as we go on. Uh, but it's a very valid time. It's a great little uh, interplay between the two characters, and I really appreciated it, and I wish we'd had more. In Archer's quarters, Topol and Archer are discussing uh, the findings of the probe and they realise that there is a faint EM signature. And this is quite important because it could be the reason why the explosion happened and perhaps not the fault of the Enterprise. But without even missing a beat, Archer is just talking it down. He said, nice try, uh, but it's not going to get us. It's, you know, it's not going to convince the Vulcans and it's not going to convince the rest of Starfleet. Topol doesn't take it no for an answer though and she is acting the way that I would have expected Archer to act and she's saying that you know, stop feeling sorry for yourself is this what humans mean by feeling sorry for yourself and uh, Archer's sort of saying you're, you're being about out of line I don't think she is <laughs> I think she's saying exactly what the situation is and it proves again to the audience to me and probably to you that Topol has probably the best reading of human beings that you could probably get, um, other than maybe Phlox, who comes at it from a slightly more optimistic viewpoint, but the two aliens on the ship have the best viewpoint of humanity, as is probably standard for Star Trek. There's the next scene, when we go back to sickbay, and Trip is talking to Phlox. He's understandably upset, and he is the kind of upset that I would expect Archer to have been that he didn't want to um, give up straight away. Uh, it's nice to see, and he's being a bit confrontational with Phlox and even saying it's very annoying how you're optimistic all the time. Not quite a traitrid, because I can understand where Trip's coming from, uh, and it's not done in an aggressive way that is uh, horrid. Uh, it's it's not something that I, I hated this scene for, but, you know, I still don't like when someone attacks Phlox. So I count this as a mini Traitrid, maybe a warp factor one of Traitrid, uh, but a mini Traitrid at least. And that's purely because Phlox uses the, the phrase, 
I will miss your outspoken personality. Maybe that's why I don't like Mr. Tucker. Who knows? We move over to Archer's quarters again, and he goes to bed at 15 minutes and 31 seconds as the end of the first timestamp. We come back in at 19 minutes 55 seconds. Now, to see what happened in that intervening four minutes or so, uh, you can go to episode 2.99 of season three of this podcast to see what happened. But as far as this timey-wimey adventure that we're going on, you come back in at 19 minutes 55 seconds and Archer's woken up and it's a completely different character. The way he's holding himself, the way he zips up his uniform, he's calling the staff for a meeting to the bridge... Uh, you can see there's a change in Archer and it's part of Bakula's wonderful performance. You've moved from the the mopiness of Archer, the defeated side of Archer, and something's happened in four minutes to then take him into action Archer, into forthright Archer, into an Archer that seems to have all the answers. He asked uh, Reed before the mission uh, briefing to uh, go and look for some sort of phase discriminator, uh, EM emitter. And uh, Reed comes in with it in his hand. He's like, how did you know it was there? Uh, I'm surprised that more people in the briefing aren't questioning the sanity of Archer. He's completely changed. This would be, from their perspective, bear in mind they have not seen any time travel going on. As far as they knew, Archer went to his quarters, slept, woke up the next morning, and was a completely different man. They aren't questioning his sanity in any way. Uh, even to Paul, to Paul's reaction is uh, just to question his insistence on time travel, but nothing else. There is no mention of, um, you know, you're clutching at straws, maybe there's something more going on. Obviously, Reed has found this phase discriminator. Perhaps having a physical piece of evidence that shouldn't be there in their hands dissuades that argument. But it, I'm surprised that not a single person mentioned, wait a minute, you were about to give up You know, five minutes ago, what's changed? And I felt like there should have been just a little bit more. Just, you know, people had accepted that Archer had been defeated and now they're wondering why there's suddenly this change. They had sort of accepted that Archer had been acting defeated and now all of a sudden there is a complete change again. And it just seemed weird why there was no one uh, questioning that or at least mentioning it in a bit of dialogue. Uh, we find out that we need to build some quantum beacons, positronic based, AI based. Very strange. Uh, classic Star Trek trope coming up. The comms are on the fritz. No one can talk to them. Uh, it's a classic ploy. The captain just wants to be out of comms range just long enough so his plan can work. And he's asking Travis to turn the ship around. Travis was given something to do. We didn't see it, but he did anyway. And this is probably the first time we've seen a highly complicated, unusual, uh, potentially... Uh, confusing plan being explained sort of they have very specific jobs to do but Archer has told them what exactly they are supposed to do so unlike many previous episodes where we've had a small hand signal a nod a wink maybe a single line of dialogue we actually have we actually have a sort of plan being explained by Archer so mark your date in your calendars this is when it happens in Shockwave we cut to the scene with Archer and Trip trying to put together these quantum beacons and the techno babble is placed at warp factor 9, possibly even warp factor 10. Uh, it's confusing Trip, 
It's a level of quantum engineering that even he doesn't understand. They talk about Daniels and how he was vaporised back in Cold Front, and to their mind, that means he would have been dead, but he seems to have come back. And we find out sort of what happened in those intervening four minutes, uh, from Archer going to bed to waking up. Archer, Hoshi and Paul are doing some hacking, and they find that the uh, Vulcan ship is still too far out of comms for them to work out uh, where they're going and what's going on. So they are now isolated from what um, Starfleet wants them to do. They're going to hack into the uh, phase discriminator, try and get some information, and then sort of work that backwards. Reed and Archer then go into Daniel's quarters. Still more callbacks to Daniels being on board, that locked uh, area. Still surprises me to this day why the Ferengi in Acquisition didn't think to maybe check a locked door or try and blow it up, uh, but it's still there, so there we go. There's a weird moment just before they go into the room where uh, Reed is questioning, you know, um, why didn't they know this? Why don't they do this? Um, you know, Temporally speaking, you know, why didn't things happen in a certain order? And Archer's talking about Bible movies and that it wasn't written. And that seems an odd argument. Um, one, because I think it's the first time we've had a, a Starfleet captain mention the Bible and take a religious sort of angle on things. But given that Daniels is already employing a plan that wasn't written to undo something, uh, they seem to be taking time travel in two different ways in the same episode if you know what I mean. Uh, things weren't written, so therefore they didn't happen, but now we are doing things that weren't written to correct the things that didn't happen. Uh, I do love temporal mechanics. They're looking through Daniel's database, and they find uh, some schematics, and Reed is straight in trying to find the Klingon battlecruiser schematics. Um, there are some really great callbacks if you get to see this, if you sort of do screenshots and slow it down. Um, I did just because I thought it would be a bit fun, but you can see everything from uh, the Defiant in Deep Space Nine, Nova-class starships, uh, Voyager, uh, you've got Constellation. Um, you've got all sorts of other ships that are being in there on this, the freeze frame. So if you do give it a look, if you are watching this episode along with us, um, during this time, uh, you've got quite a lot of little callbacks, little Easter eggs, little references. And it's kind of the way that I love a, an Easter egg or reference to go. It's just enough for you to show the uh, the Enterprise or anything like that, but not really mention anything and not go any further. But it is a bit of spoilers, so Temporal Trek spoilers, you're seeing ships that shouldn't already exist. We go down to Engineering, and we find that Trip has now made the beacons, and he talks about uh, feeling like he's a chef, making a meal with ingredients he's never even seen or tasted. But the emitters are ready. It's a nice little... Uh, metaphor there uh, and um, I, I enjoyed it I thought that was, uh, it was a typical kind of thing that you'd hear from Tripp's mouth as a character what Tripp would say they arrive back at the colony only to then have Travis reset the course to a nearby binary star system and this sort of confused me I'm, I'm wondering what they were going for with this are they trying to show that they are masking their signature that if the Vulcans who are outside comms range maybe are following them now if they were perhaps to follow their warp trail that they think they're going back to just the colony but now they're going to change over to the binary star system but again that's not mentioned in the dialogue they don't go anywhere with that so why didn't they just set course for the binary star system in the first place uh, using a, a, a navigational point from a point you've already been 
is a very sort of uh, naval way of doing things, but doesn't really seem to make sense in space flight and star travel. Uh, you would just go straight to the binary star system. Also, if there is something out there and perhaps all these things that Daniels hasn't given you work out, perhaps going somewhere that would be trackable by the Vulcans, so the Vulcans are there to maybe you know, catch up with you and, and lend assistance if things go wrong, maybe would it be a better ploy? Otherwise, if you're not going to be found and things do go wrong, it might be nice to have uh, some backup there. Uh, and, and to be found, you know, leave the breadcrumbs just enough for someone to find you. So it seemed a bit weird that they didn't just go there straight away. They find a moon, they deploy the beacons on the grappler hooks. Uh, it's a nice little uh, CGI effect, and it's a believable way you'd think this technology would develop. In later seasons and later iterations of Star Trek, you see sensors uh, working, but you don't see the sensors that are working. Whereas on Enterprise, because it's still early technology, you are seeing the kit, you are seeing the, the piece of engineering that is being deployed outside the ship to then be used again. Uh, it's a nice throwback to civilization where they were using the cameras. It's a nice allusion to the phase cannons that we've been seeing in several episodes, which we'll also see in this one as well. And speaking of which, Reed gets to blow stuff up. He gets to fire phasers and torpedoes at the same time. And they are taking out this... Uh, cloaked stealth shuttle that the Sulaban have been using on the moon and uh, they are able to sneak aboard. They are uh, going to take down the shuttle pod to the shuttle that has now been disabled and they're going to storm it to try and get some data disks, some valuable data disks. I really like the layout of the Sulaban shuttle. The design of it, it, it seems alien, it seems weird. The hexagon designs are there everywhere. The symbol of what the Sulaban is is everywhere. Um, the ladders aren't closed off as you would normally see on, say, the Enterprise or other ships that we've seen uh, throughout um, Season 1. They're open-ended, which would fit with a species that is capable of walking up walls and things like that. So it, it, the design of it makes a lot of sense when you think of it in that aspect. They talk about the raid and that there should be no more than 20 Sulaban. And you know me, when they say things like that, I have to count it. Uh, I count five Sulaban downed in the first time when they use the stun grenade. There's a firefight with four, at least four, unseen Sulaban. Now you don't see the Sulaban, but you certainly see their weapons fire, and there are four separate juts of phaser fire. So there were four Sulaban, but they were not taken out, so there's at least four still standing as we go. They make it all the way to the data core, they get the data disks, and then they're coming back out again. Reed is tracking from outside, so they've got all the schematics, so they're able to scan right down to uh, the hallways and the corridors and everything like this. He has a readout of dots, red dots, that are marking all the Sulaban's position on the ship. He has five Sulaban still chasing them from a top corridor, five from a left bottom corridor, and five from a right bottom corridor, which leaves 15. Now, part of that 15 could be the four that we didn't see before, so you could say that. Um, but Reed fires some precise fire, phasers fire shots to knock out some of the corridors to stop those Sulaban from catching them up. And it shows five Sulaban being downed. However, when you go back to the screen, there's still another five, five, and five. So that's an additional five. So he said no more than 20 Sulaban, but I count 25. I don't know about you. <sighs> I love being pedantic. Right. 
They escape. They get back to the Enterprise. And we have a docking clamp sequence where they try to rip um, the shuttle pod away to get back to the Enterprise in the escape. And I, I realise that the, the shuttle pod has kind of a bendy uh, base that can then lock onto other ships to create like a seal so they can then go from one to the other through hatches. Um, but the bendiness of it is just a bit weird with the CGI. And I think it is, it's one of those CGI problems that I have with the episode. It's a, just a little bit weird. The, the movement of it, as it should be bendy, doesn't quite fit with what they're doing. And they, as they pull away and they rip away and they break the seal, it's just verging on the bad CGI, which can take you out of the episode. They go back to the Enterprise. He orders Warp 4 back to the Vulcan Rendezvous. So they're going to go back to the ship. Hoshi and T'Pol are looking through the data disk that they found, and they have been able to decrypt it using the hacking that they were doing from the phase discriminator. They found out the Sulaban code, as it were, to uh, decrypt it and work through all of the files that were on the data disks. And they find not only footage, but um, someone on a Sulaban ship was taking some photo snaps and recorded every single second. Why do bad guys have to see the need to record visually literally everything they did in their evil schemes? Not entirely sure. Uh, you know, as long as the mission is a success, how they did it, they wouldn't really want to keep any incriminating evidence. I don't know. Uh, you know, even a census log can be scrubbed, as we've established already in season one. And given how detailed the Suloban are in recording all of it, it makes you question why didn't anyone even read, paranoid as he is, have any kind of recorded material of a certain Ferengi species who were just there on Christmas Eve? Ah, there we go. Archer calls Forrest in a very, very different tone and uh, convinces him that they have the evidence and that there's some pretty serious implications as to what went on, but Enterprise was not to blame. Forrest orders him to return as fast as possible. Now, they're already at warp four, as we just saw. Archer just gave the order, but we know they can do warp five. Yes, for a limited uh, time only, but warp five is possible. Why not increase it to warp five? We saw in Fallen Hero that going from 4.9 to a full warp five um, decrease their time from a 50-minute rendezvous to 10 minutes. That cuts down a lot of time. By going at warp 5 as fast as they can toward a Vulcan ship, they would have uh, got there, reached the rendezvous, and wouldn't have been caught up by anybody. However, uh, there is a callback to the Helix, the first time we've seen it in the year 2152. Uh, not the first time, obviously, we've seen a Helix in Enterprise. But we haven't actually seen one since Cold Front. And it really comes back to that idea of Season 1 wondering whether this should have been Season 1. Should the Suliban have been brought in this early? Uh, the Fallen Hero Ryson trilogy, as appalling as Two Days and Two Nights was, um, and wouldn't be how I would naturally leave the season, having the finale perhaps be a bit more about answering to the fallout that Archer put through that little conversation between Hoshi and Travis expand on how Enterprise is seen back home perhaps the fallout from having Starfleet out there whilst there's all these raiders and uh, you know there's criminal elements and this maybe this you know ooh, elusive Orion syndicate that we seem to be hearing about so much um, maybe having that as the finale then having this helix show up 
and all of these things happen that involves the Sulaban, the Temporal Cold War, and so on and so on and so on a little bit later. You know, take all of that Temporal Cold War story and then put it into the beginning of season two that will then sort of launch the temporal cold war for season two there's a lot going on is what i'm saying in season one there is a lot that they've been putting in that doesn't feel like it needed to be there and just by going back to this helix you know you're thinking that it's been a while since i've seen that where is this what are we doing um i sort of know silic and i appreciate that they were bringing back the same sulaban every time and that's a really nice touch to have like a main villain which we didn't always have back in uh, even tng days maybe we had tumalox sometimes but he wasn't really a a recurring villain um then we have sort of Selar later on and the duras sisters um but it, they weren't sort of like a a, a returning uh, arch nemesis as it were it just feels that having the gaps between it is believable because obviously we're in a much slower time period you know warp 5 is the best they can do but i think to really sort of bring it together maybe have it a bit more cohesive having left it to later parts of the season and just focus season 1 on smaller you know the exploration side but with a overarching story about all of the raiders and the criminal elements I've said it in many other episodes before and I will shut up now on my little theory and pet pet ways of how I would have done things um, because it's my personal take. I know that lots of people um, will think that this idea is stupid and would think that my idea for season one is is not the way I would go for it, um, you know, but it's my take. There you go. Uh, I would have had season one, at least the first three or four episodes, they earned their right to be in space. Archer is putting the case forward, putting his crew together. Um, as I mentioned back in Broken Bow, you take that pilot episode, expand on that idea. You don't have Clang crash landing. You have Archer and the political side of things. He then goes into space. The politics follow them to an extent because these raiders hear of this new ship, new technology, something they could maybe steal. They start attacking in different species. Um, you know, the multifaceted head of the Orion Syndicate is they show they shove these other um, uh, raiders at them in different quarters to try and test their metal, try and see what's going on. They even hire the the Ferengi uh, to do it uh, in a different way, and then they're just going to double-cross the Ferengi and steal all the stuff they've just stolen. You know, there were so many other things you could do with that season one with that element. Uh, but that's my take, and that's not the episode, and that's not what the Temporal Trek is here for. But there we go. Um, back to the episode. Archer and Paul are discussing the Vulcan Science Directorate's take on time travel, and... Uh, that uh, she said that um, it's just because you had all of this because we managed to launch this entire operation doesn't mean you actually traveled to the future or had some other temporal knowledge she says that you were dreaming that's a bit of a stretch i mean logically that's a bit of a stretch isn't it i mean uh, dreaming is one thing maybe having intel would have been my go-to my logical inference of how he would have so much information uh, that uh, you know, blaming it on this Daniels figure and a time travel story. Why not just say that Archer received uh, you know 
a communique from a passing traveller. What about the uh, passing um, traveller from Oasis, the one right at the very beginning, uh, who gave them all the spicy sauces? Uh, say, oh, you could have received it from him. He was a trader in information, a dealer in uh, in certain things. He owed us a favour, blah, 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 blah. And going from that, um, you could have easily had her say that, and I think it would have been more believable coming from a Vulcan, that she would have had a slightly more realistic, logical explanation as to why or how Archer was able to pull off such a precise raid. It also doesn't quite make sense, given that they were going into Daniel's quarters and got a piece of technology that both Archer and Reed saw. If it were just Archer that was allowed to go in there, get where he needed, and then come back out again, fair enough, but it's involving other members of the crew. This isn't some... Uh, mass delusion uh, that would be going on uh, there are other witnesses to this temporal element um, how would they have got the information in any other way uh, and it, it's it just seems a bit of an odd bit of writing to ignore the logical approach how a skeptic would have answered it to say it's just dreaming seems a little bit lazy a little bit lackluster uh, and not really true to, to what to poll's take would be on this. But there's some great moments in this scene where they're talking about trusting each other, relying upon each other, um, a great callback to Fallen Hero, their, their talk of trust and friendship and things like this. Archer does say, you're accusing me of being a madman. Well, not really. Um, I know she said dreaming, but she never mentioned man-man. Um, so again, I think he's putting words into her mouth. Micro-singularities. The pair are called back to the bridge, and we find out there is an imbalanced warp field. And I felt like this was a bit of a callback to Unexpected, and something that I really hoped they would do more in Season 1. And I thought they did. You know, in the back of my mind, my hazy recall of watching this um, back when, and it has been a while since i watched Season 1, um, I always thought that they did this a little bit more, that there were little bits of knowledge that they built out of other episodes that were placed in and were given as good explanations as to why they were able to figure it out now this being one of them. Because of Unexpected, because the Zerillians destabilised their warp field by then sort of following them and riding in their wake, they were then figuring out that, oh wait, that means there's a ship in our wake again, and that they're doing the same sort of thing. They're, they're, they're using the information they've gained over this year to prove how uh, better and more prepared they are in space. They modify the view screen, and guess who's in charge? It's Travis! Travis is given another job. He's not just flying the ship. He is moving and tilting the camera with the beacon still activated, and they're able to detect some hexagon pods, the Sulaban pod ships, and they are surrounded. They've got high yield weapons targeting the warp core, and they are surrounded. Now, Reed does get off one little fire shot every now and then, and manages to fire back whilst they're at warp. Now, this is interesting, because in Fallen Hero, they'd established they couldn't fire at warp, but here they are doing it. Is this a consequence? Did he then figure out how he would do that? And he has written in or figured out a way of using the phase cannons at warp. Uh, it's never mentioned. There isn't a line of dialogue that just says, "Did you figure out that warp field problem? You know, did, you know that last time when we were fighting against the Mazarites? Did you you figure it out?" Um, again, one of those little niggles that, as a writer, I would like to just hear so that we are seeing that they are learning. Again, that unexpected 
uh, callback with the warp field instability. I would have liked just one more to Fallen Hero. Just keep that going. They're piecing all these uh, things together, these information uh, uh, nuggets, and they're placing it together to turn it into real experienced Starfleet crew. But it's to no avail, and they aren't able to keep up the firing solution, and they are surrounded still. Um, they get a communication from Silic over the comms, and he asks Archer, specifically Archer, to surrender himself. Archer just goes along with it. Um, there's not, a, again, the Archer that I expect. I would expect that he was defeated, he came back, and that maybe now he's not going to accept anything ever again. He, he would fight against it again. I'm surprised he didn't go for, you know, come get me, board the ship, you know, we'll fight our way out. Um, perhaps he just realises there's a higher calling, and this is part of the character growth of Archer, but why he didn't say, you can come on board uh, and come and get me. Um, and, you know, all of those pods, if they then place their Sulaban soldiers on board, we know that a maximum of two people can fit in those pods and not much else. Even if they were somehow to squeeze in three each, with the amount of pods around them, there are more crew on the Enterprise than there are Sulaban, and they are funneled through a you know a very narrow corridor to get in. They could easily set up perhaps I don't know Reed's EM fields at those access points. Technology the Sulaban aren't aware that Reed has developed. Uh, contain them, you know, set up some automated phaser cannon. Uh, thingamajigs, stun grenades as we've seen that they work on the raid um, there were so many things that I would have expected them to try and do before they lead up to Archer getting in the turbo lift but Archer does go to the turbo lift he does give in, he says that you know, T'Pol is now in command uh, keep an open mind, calling back to their discussion about time travel uh, and uh, that things may go a bit weird and I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen uh, Trip is saying this is crazy, um, uh, but Archer just shoots him straight down and says, you know, you've got to do um, everything you can to help her, to help to pole. And it's a nice moment because I think it's the f the final part of that bond between him and to pole that he realizes that she is the best shot the ship has of surviving. But the crew need to get behind that to get past their prejudice against her um, and help because that's the only way they're going to get through this. It's very Star Trek-y. There's a slight um, cheesiness as well as he turns to Hoshi and asks uh, her to look after Porthos. But remember, no cheese. He gets into the turbo lift and we stop at timestamp 39 minutes, 54 seconds. We come back at 40 minutes and 3 seconds. T'Pol is hailed by Silic again and told your captain is playing a dangerous game. They check the turbo lift and there are no bio signs. Where did he go? Silic cuts out the comms after saying that, you know, he could have saved all your lives and now they're going to target the warp core. They're powering up their weapons. They're going to destroy the ship at 41 minutes and 6 seconds. To be continued. Now, that's the end of the first episode of Shockwave. Uh, if you haven't then gone on to uh, watch the next episode, I'll give you the timestamps for the next one. But I am going to readjust my chrono date. Accessing library computer data. Transfer complete. This is the Temporal Trek podcast. 
So welcome back to Season 3, Episode 27 of this podcast, Season 2, Episode 1 of Star Trek Enterprise. Now, the timestamps for this episode are starting at 1 minute 29 seconds. We then end at 2 minutes 35 seconds into the credits. We start again at 6 minutes and 34 seconds and end at 11 minutes and 25 seconds. Starting again, 14 minutes, 29 seconds. We end at 15 minutes and 42 seconds. Starting again at 16 minutes, 25 seconds. Ending at 17 minutes and 37 seconds. The last timestamp is started at 18 minutes and 16 seconds, right up to the end of the episode, as we finish at 41 minutes and 58 seconds. Now, the timestamp starts quite later in the episode because we've had a recap of the previous episode already uh, in part two. Now these two episodes were filmed separately and they were not a concurrent uh, two-parter. They were um, deliberately designed to be a to-be-continued moment. Um, Star Trek sort of had this idea since uh, the to-be-continued was so successful with Best of Both Worlds and I feel like Star Trek was just trying to repeat that success or play into that success again and again and again leaving on this high cliffhanger and wanting to come back. It has led, and I've heard this on many podcasts, to an almost a curse of a part two, uh, in that it tries to live up to this epic setup in a first part, and then the explanation doesn't quite land, doesn't quite get there, uh, and isn't worse, but isn't quite as uh, up to people's expectations. Going through this episode and thinking about that, this is slightly more action-oriented. There's there's a lot more going on. Um, there are a lot more timestamps in this episode as well, so it chopped and changed quite a bit. So I will just be looking at the events in 2152. Um, we are not going to be going into any future events, um, unless, of course, there is any calls from the future that might be happening that come into our timeline. Because of that recap, that's why we start at 1 minute and 29 seconds. Now, it's interesting. At the end of the last episode, Siddick cut out the communications. He was not on the comms. He was not on the view screen at that time. However, T'Pol continues her conversation and is talking to him again, despite no time being passed. Despite no point where they said, recontact Siddick or hail him again. Um... There's a, a discontinuity between the two because they ended on this epic cliffhanger of him cutting out the comms and was about to blow up the Enterprise to then coming back into the episode and almost assuming that he was still listening, like he still kept a comms channel open. This, I think, is the benefit of binge-watching in that you find this out, uh, having streaming services, but thinking back to when this was being released you know this would have been six months eight months maybe even a year from one episode to the next and perhaps they were banking on the audience not paying attention uh, but you know us trek fans we do tend to pay attention so it is a weird logic jump as to how they are still on the comms and Silic can hear it but he's still talking to them to try and convince Silic, Topol offers for them to come on board. Just as I said with the previous episode, there was no offer from Archer in this regard either. Um, it doesn't have to be uh, a military solution. He could have offered for them to come on board 
and come and get him. Uh, literally just, you know, a, a honest exchange of prisoners. Uh, and it wouldn't have been a military solution, as I suggested before, with Reed and his EM fields and his phaser cannons. Um, they could have just come on board, but Topol offers it this time. Trip does protest, and quite rightly, and this is not a traitrid, um, from a security aspect, you were inviting the enemy on board, and I can believe that the humans would uh, would put up a fight, and that the, the Vulcan in charge is uh, not being allowed to just give commands as they would logically deem fit. But I like that he relents straight away, that the words that Archer imparted to him and said, you know, give her all your support, help her out, um, the only way through it is together, that he does stand down. And I like that that is a character change. And I wonder if that was a intended change from the writer's perspective. Could this be an end to the traitorid uh, because if he is able to step back from his own impulses at challenging her decisions all the time uh, I'm looking forward to seeing if this is a trend that season two deliberately put in and perhaps the writers came back to and realized that they didn't like about the character that he was always getting in her way as we've been talking about in season one the the workplace bullying I know we've been joking about it and we have you know been a little bit tongue-in-cheek sometimes with it but he was unnecessarily antagonistic sometimes as i've sort of mentioned in in other episodes you may or may not agree with me but that antagonism from this scene isn't there he protests under a sort of uh, security element and and sort of saying you don't can't let them on board blah, blah 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 but he immediately stands down that opinion once then she gives that order and she's quite right They've got phasers on their warp core. They could blow them up and blow them out the stars in a matter of seconds. What other choice do we have? And it makes perfect sense. And the Sulaban begin to dock. We end at 2 minutes 35 seconds into the credits. Now we come back at 6 minutes 34 seconds. Sulaban boarding parties are everywhere. They seem to be scanning everything about the ship. Perhaps assuming a cloak as they are sort of looking around with their uh, their scanners at eye level almost as if they're trying to see if archer is wearing some sort of you know cloak of invisibility if we want to cross over to the harry potter franchise um a quite a believable way of searching given that this is a species who have been given the ability to cloak themselves suddenly they had all this quantum beacon technology to be able to detect cloaked ships which they didn't know they had uh, so they could easily think, wait a minute, what if they were given other advantages by Daniels, by the future, and so on. Up on the bridge, the Sulaban are threatening Hoshi, and they have uh, these guns, their phaser pistols, in what looks like uh, an orange-brown camo design. And I thought it was quite a believable aspect. It makes the guns look a bit plasticky and a bit cheap, but it it's a design that kind of fits the species because if they are cloakable then their weapons need to be as cloakable as them otherwise you're just seeing this random phaser walking down the corridor um, or being you know taken around so is it some sort of reactive surface that cloaks with the user um, having it as a camo design it's kind of i don't know whether it's informing us the audience that that's the capability of it it's a design informing the audience i don't know but it was just a nice little design. We now get another mention of the temporal Cold War. And it's another reason why I think that season two introducing the Cold War might have worked more. That Silic talking about this temporal Cold War 
to T'Pol is her way of kind of bringing it to Archer and Archer's attention. If we'd set up that uh, the Temporal Cold War starts in Shockwave Part 2, and perhaps this abduction of Archer comes a bit later. The Sulaban, it's assumed, are working for you know the Orion Syndicate that we dealt with last year, and they are sort of they've taken a hit they've gone they've, they've been uh, taken away back underground to to lick their wounds and they might be back in the future blah 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 um and now this sulaban are this extra threat they've come through because the orion syndicate are gone and yeah shockwave part one had been the rise of the temporal cold war into part two um I don't know, it, it, it just seemed like the way he said it was almost like this is the first time you're hearing of it, even though we, the audience, have heard of it a couple of times already. T'Pol says, you killed Daniels, and she's very matter-of-fact, and her delivery is almost to the point of being a joke, and I really appreciated it, because we've seen T'Pol's dry sense of humour, her deadpan, and it's played so well in season one. Um, I, I think I would have liked more of it. I think that in the interrogation scene, I think maybe have her just give these deadpan responses and just keep it coming and she is just burning him over and over again by pointing out these logical reasons why his argument doesn't make any sense even though to him he's more than aware of temporal cold wars and things like this so to him it makes sense um i just would have liked it and maybe even just to have the crew kind of um smirk at it or just to realize it and then you know that invites the guards to do the old punch to the kidneys you know shut up you know do all this kind of stuff um it might be a bit you know uh hokey a bit tropey um but i think i would have liked to have seen a bit more of that again why didn't the sulaban take anything from daniel's quarters it's a sealed door wouldn't that alert someone wouldn't they have scanned for him in that compartment wouldn't they have phased off the lock just to get in uh it's another confusing element of Daniel's quarters being sealed off. When you really think about it, that when the ship is being boarded, why no one thinks a locked door isn't suspicious in any way? Why didn't the Frangi uh, think of it? Why don't the Sulaban think of it now? I'm struggling to think of other times that uh, the, sh the ship will be boarded in the next three years. Um, but... I don't know, it, it, there's something about that crew quarters being sealed off that seems unusual to me. Um, and why it doesn't ring more alarm bells for people boarding the ship. And we cut back to Earth. Now this is the first time we are seeing Earth in 2152. But hang on a minute, if you look very closely, and if you are watching this episode, isn't that the same four people in the foreground, and a couple of people in the background as well, having the same meeting? How bizarre. Now, this is the first time we've seen Earth since Shadows of Pajem, and they are having the same meeting over eight months ago. Now, I don't want to start any alarm bells here or any conspiracies, but is Earth stuck in a temporal causality loop? Who knows? There we go. Um, but it's uh, it's that wonderful map painting of Earth, and you know, it's just a quick, short way of doing things, as Star Trek likes to do, of showing us where we are. Uh, but they had the exact same actors do the exact same thing. Um, I, just from a budget point of view, is it that expensive to refilm it just twice, but with different actors in different costumes, maybe swap them around? So it's believable that these four people would have the same meeting eight months over, but maybe just place them different and block them out differently. So they've got you know a couple of versions of this map painting set up for Earth just to use for future episodes, but so it doesn't look exactly the same. 
we get a mention that the Enterprise is three days overdue. And I wonder if this was a deliberate attempt to explain why the actors look just a little bit different. And when you do watch this episode again, there is a change between uh, T'Pol, uh, Reed, Trip, Hoshi, um, even Travis as well. Uh, for the little bit we do get to see Travis. And Archer, uh, we will see later as well. But at least his um, appearance is explainable as to the little journey that he's about to go on, which we aren't seeing as far as these timestamps. But the actors look just a little bit older, more uh, more tanned. Maybe they went away on holiday in between filming the two seasons. Uh, I don't know. The actors just look a little bit different. And I, I wondered if saying that they're three days overdue is the writer's way of explaining that there is a, a, a three-day time jump. But there we go. Saval is back, and it's his third time back on Enterprise. The first time we see him in 2152, however, and he is blaming the Enterprise. He is doing that typical play of saying that Archer has destabilized the region, uh, that he uh, shoots from the hip and he couldn't be trusted. Uh, the, um, the only response is for Enterprise to be withdrawn from service, this mission to be scrubbed, and for you to you know sit back in Earth for a little bit longer and uh, and think about what you did, <laughs> just like a, a disgruntled parent telling off their child. The Takir, the Vulcan ship, is placed in pursuit of Enterprise because it has disappeared, and that they conclude that Tupol uh, wouldn't have allowed this to happen, and that she must be taken captive by Archer. Again, another big logic jump from the Vulcans. It's, you know, why would they spend a year on a ship with her only to kidnap her when things went a little bit weird? It's a massive jump and a very emotional jump, I think. The the logical inference would be um, that something else had happened to them along the way and why they didn't send the Takir after them, not in a, a tactical pursuit, but just in a pursuit just to find them um it it seems as though saval is coming from an emotional standpoint that he is aggravated by archer and the humans in starfleet and that his action to send them in pursuit a tactical pursuit assuming that topol has been kidnapped i don't know it just seems a bit of an overreach and even one of the starfleet members uh, does mention this uh, some someone in the starfleet crew in forest's office uh, says, you know, he's not in the habit of abducting Vulcans. And from everything we've learned in Shadows of Jam and so forth, even a Andorian incident, when he backstabs the Vulcans, it wasn't um, an act of attrition against the Vulcans. He just exposed it. That's all he did. He, it wasn't a violent um, reaction to the, the Vulcans. He didn't hold them prisoner and, you know, drop them off at the nearest authorities. He didn't take those Vulcans as hostages, the monks as hostages, um, he just exposed it. That was it. So to then say he would then leap to being a uh, kidnapper, it's it's a bit of a logic jump for me as an audience member. If you think otherwise, I would love to hear it. Please do get in contact, Twitter, emails, Facebook groups, you name it, come find us uh, and let's talk about it. But for me, Saval is, is acting very emotionally in this scene and his reaction seems a rather emotional one. But I do enjoy the tense political standoff that Forrest believes in Archer and that he knows what he's doing. Um, and it's a bit funny because obviously Archer isn't there and maybe he doesn't know what he's doing right now. But there we go. We're back on the Helix again. Second time for seeing it, 2152. 
and uh, we're in a nebula. We know that they've moved from the gas giant that they were hiding in in Broken Bow, and they are now in this nebula, so a new position. But Silic is cut off from the future guy. Having received the orders to kidnap Archer previously, he is now uh, on his own. He's not receiving orders from the future and seems genuinely worried by this. And he's quite distracted. And I don't know whether it was a deliberate mirroring of the way Archer reacted to the loss of the colony and he was very you know, down and defeated to then suddenly become bolstered once he gets Daniel's information. Um, whether Silic is going on a similar journey that he was so arrogant to a fault up to a point then loses contact with the future and is then doubting himself and going this way that you know uh, archer's rise up is silic's downfall and i was wondering if that was the writing process they were going for with that uh, if it is wonderful if it's not i'm just reading into things too much and i should really just shut up we end at 11 minutes and 25 seconds as silic gives the order to prepare the vulcan we come back in at 14 minutes 29 seconds and uh, we get the Vulcan interrogation scene. We have seen this technology before, back in Broken Bow, when Clang the Klingon was being uh, interrogated. They placed this collar around his neck and he was being drugged. He was being injected with several tubes of unknown liquid that was making him talk and he was very... Um, withdrawn his his words were jumbled he wasn't completing full sentences and you know uh, to is doing the exact same thing she is drugged not really cogent she is trying to maintain her composure and her vulcan training to try and uh, talk about you know um, uh, it was two days ago we saw daniels not three days as uh, Saval was saying they were three days overdue um she was repeating the vulcan science directorate uh, doesn't believe in time travel, doesn't believe in time travel and coming over. And that is a very believable aspect, given that we've already seen this technology work before on Clang. However, when Clang was in that armchair, when he was in that restraint, he was fully clothed. T'Pol has had her top removed down to the basic vest that she wears under this top. And it's another example, not of sexy trek but of creepy trek and are they trying to make an interrogation scene seem sexy are they trying to play on the fact that a woman is being held against her will drugged but we have to have her in a skimpy slight outfit we have to rip away her clothes and it's an uncomfortable watch because you're seeing a lovely character, a beloved character being tortured, but there's also an added creepy element in that there is an exploitative part of what Enterprise is doing with the character, with the actress, that comes across in this scene. Again, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but if you don't have to strip down the Klingon in the first pilot episode, why did you have to strap down the much smaller Vulcan, um, if you made it out that, you know, she doesn't fit it and you're trying to do that, maybe that kind of works, but, you know, the Klingon was at least three times her size and they didn't have to strip him down to make him fit into the chair. Why are they doing it to T'Pol? It's because they want to exploit it and, and so forth. And it's an uncomfortable watch for several different reasons. 
and the scene ends at 15 minutes 42 seconds. We return at 16 minutes 25 seconds and Reed is in his quarters sort of pacing up and down wondering what he's going to do and he starts to hear that the comm system is whining. He tries to uh, get them to boost the signal, he's sort of talking to them, he has no idea who he's talking to uh, but we eventually find out it's Trip and he's rerouting the signal uh, through the doorbell system, the comm system. He can talk to everyone on E-Deck. Now what I find interesting, uh, convenient, is that Trip had a bunch of tools stuck inside his quarters. Now he's the engineer, so I'd expect him to maybe have a toolkit everywhere, you know, stashed everywhere. Um, but why wasn't that taken away from him when he was placed under house arrest inside his quarters? I don't really know. Uh, clearly these Suleban are slipping and they have no idea what they're dealing with and they're completely underestimating everybody because Trip has now made a signal system using a doorbell. There you go. But they can't talk to everybody as Hoshi and Travis are on C-Deck and he's only been able to reroute all the power through E. A nice interesting note I did find is that that means that Hoshi and Travis are on sea deck which means they're closer to the bridge which makes sense given that their duty stations are normally by the bridge but Reed and Trip are two decks down from that on E deck. I can understand Trip perhaps being nearer the engine room so that makes sense but Reed's primary position is on the bridge as well why isn't he also on sea deck? You could argue, I suppose, maybe the, the weapons and the, the, the torpedo room and everything like that is down below, so he's got, you know, position all the way around the deck. But just, you know, one of those nerdy little conversations like, why is Reed placed at a different point on the ship? Surely to be more efficient, he should be nearer the bridge? I don't know. There we go. If you've got thoughts on that, get in touch. But it's nice to see that classic... It's a Star Trek TOS, it's a Star Trek uh, TNG, you know, the lower decks crew, the, the rest of the bridge crew are putting together their little escape plan uh, and you get the first inklings of it at this point. And we stop at 17 minutes and 37 seconds. We come back at 18 minutes and 16 seconds and T'Pol is being dragged to her quarters and uh, she's been um, obviously drugged, she's coming down from the drugs and she's still in the vest top and you kind of feel like they're just continuing that creep factor creepy trek is carrying on um this is now the second time that uh T'Pol has been assaulted in some way uh for uh, season one into season two uh, and that's two times in a three month period um i just wonder if it's i don't know what it is i mean when it comes to archer uh, we joke about ultra abductions. He gets punched in the kidneys and things like that. Uh, you know, he's not stripped down to his you know, nether regions and uh, you know just his underpants and uh, and then beaten. He's beaten in his uniform and he's kept in such. Uh, whereas uh, uh, T'Pol isn't, and it's it is that part of Enterprise that puts it down in my estimations. It's one of the things I do hold against it, and I think it's it becomes so much more dated now watching the episodes again and it's uncomfortable to watch uh yes you know interrogate the char the character and put her through this but when you think of uh Tuvok in Voyager there are several episodes i can remember where he is placed in some sort of torture environment uh there's even a mention of you know i didn't know Vulcan screamed and he even talks about they don't normally do that um he's fully in uniform He's not dragged back um, when he is placed, I think, in a vest top and he's sort of sweating it and all this sort of thing. 
the way it's filmed, the way it's blocked, doesn't seem exploitative. Whereas when it's with Topol and Enterprise, I don't know, there's an icky factor, and I don't know whether that's just my reading into it because of the previous times they've done it in the season, they're just continuing it, or, you know, is it worse than I'm seeing? I just can't place how I feel about it. And um, again, come back to me. If I'm being overreactive, let me know. If I'm not reacting enough and I should be even more deplored by it, uh, please let me know. And I would love to, to talk about it, bring you on the episode. Maybe you can be a guest as well. Please let me know. But it's at this point we get a call from the future and we see the head of Archer floating above her and talking to her. And it's nice that he's obviously putting the call in to try and tell her what's going on, where is he, what's happening, that he's in the future. But he takes the time in the call to ask how she is and that he is concerned in the way that she's responding, that uh, clearly something's happened to her and he's aware of that. Um, he takes the time to, to at least consider what she's going through before then dumping her with a plan they're about to do. And unlike the last episode in Shockwave Part 1, he is going to convey the information without us, the audience, knowing or seeing it. Uh, there's going to be this complicated rescue of Archer from the time stream, but we aren't going to see it. We're going to see how they do it, but he doesn't explain how it's going to go on. Uh, we see all the crew now talking through the doorbells, and uh, T'Pol has regained her composure. She is now talking like a typical Vulcan. Uh, all the other crew are in there. We find out that Hoshi uh, is the only one who will be able to squeeze through the narrow corridors because Hoshi is small. Now, when you see her crawling through the corridors, they seem pretty large. Like, Reed isn't a, a massive gentleman and is quite short and quite slight. And I think he probably could fit in there just as well. Um, it's clear that Hoshi probably would be the only person who can get out the vent at the end. Talking of which, she has more than secured a place to be considered for the MVP for this year, uh, just starting off. The, the fact she's going through that with her claustrophobia and all this, absolutely fantastic. A nice callback there to uh, Sleeping Dogs and talking about how she suffers in cramped small conditions and not wanting to be in the spacesuits as well that she's mentioned in several other episodes. Flocks is the person she needs to get to. She prepares the shot, she picks it up. She's doing all this physical activity and proving how adept she is, not just with languages, but how um, uh, vital to the crew that she is. Without her doing this, none of the rest of the episode happens. And how do they repay that character? With the ultimate creepy trek, I think, in this episode. Not only have we assaulted the female uh, on board who is the Vulcan, we are now giving this this prodigy, as she mentioned in the last episode, the person who has uh, at least adopted 22 other languages. She is the most talented person on the entire crew. How do we repay her? Uh, she's going to go through the little hatch and her top falls off. Ugh, cringe. Yeah, why do it? I mean, yes, Sato is the only person who could fit in and all of that makes kind of sense to it and obviously it's it's heightened by the fact that she is the claustrophobic character and it's a fantastic idea to give her this heroic moment to only completely pull the rug under that out of that to ruin it to belittle it with she's made naked at the end <laughs> it's the five-year-old in the writer's room again and why 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 ruin it uh, it was such a great character moment for her to be the hero of that time. Um, 
to perhaps show that she's learnt something more. And and the actress, yes, she's gorgeous. She's absolutely beautiful. Fine. But that's not how you celebrate that fact. Um, you give her wonderful scenes. Uh, you give her the redeeming features of Two Days and Two Nights by showing how smart she is. That's how attractive she is. Um, ripping her top off just to make get a giggle. It's... It's just not what I expect from Trek. There we go. I said it. Um, Reed uh, at least tries to avert his eyes. Uh, but again, it's that smirky schoolboy. Oh, yes. And just going off. And it's just, oh, I hate the scene. Right, moving on. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Um, Topol pretends to be going through uh, equations. And she's made it out into one of the corridors to confuse some of the Sudaban guards. Uh, Trip and uh, Reed going a bit commando, uh, going off in the corridors, and they're going to go into Daniel's quarters to try and find this beacon thing, which looks like a very, very chunky um, early days uh, Apple iPad, um, but with like a little synth touch data pad thing, um, you know, like the old uh, synth drums that you can get, um, all fused into one. Uh, but hey, you know, it's, it's a chunky time device that... Uh, yeah, when you're dealing with time, uh, technology has to be bulky, unfortunately. Uh, it may not look uh, as sophisticated as some of the newer bits of kit that we've got uh, here in the 24th century. And, you know, perhaps should be smaller because it's coming from the 30th and 31st centuries with Daniels. But it's dealing with, you know, um, timey-wimeyness. So, of course, it's going to be chunky. Uh, Silic takes the device as they um, are eventually found out. And they are stopped in their attempts to try and find out uh, what's going on. Uh, they um, take Reed hostage and beat him properly to a pulp on the bridge. Um, he is really taking it. And you could sort of believe, if you didn't know what the twist was coming up, you could sort of believe that Reed would be the character to give away the information. As much as he's shown bravado, as, shown, as much as he's shown that he wants to be the guy who sacrifices himself, you could sort of see that it's believable that he would be the one to cave that maybe it's a bit of false bravado that he's he's trying to show himself to be heroic but he's really not on the inside of course we find out later that he really is uh, on the inside but if they'd gone with that thread and made it that he hates himself like this is, there's an inner turmoil inside him i think for the character and for us the audience might have been a a, a more interesting twist and play that actually reed did give up the pad um, he was supposed to give it up later, perhaps in the plan, but he gave up the pad a bit earlier than planned. Um, I don't know, just uh, these aren't supposed to be perfect characters. This is still the first year or so into the Starfleet mission. They are not the perfect Starfleet officers. What better way to show that than to show a character who maybe doesn't like himself on the inside? Maybe. There we go. But we now get into the the action sequence this is all of this playing into it silic is going to use the device to call out the future guy and try and repair uh, whatever damage has been done to the timeline enterprise is now making a break for it um there's they're setting up a fake warp core breach uh, some pyrotechnics to make it look like the enterprise is exploding but it's not um there's scorch marks all along the enterprise um how exactly that gets built into the system like why there is a fake warp core breach ability for the ship uh what use was that well that's in incredible foresight and planning there uh, on his behalf uh how you do that uh, i mean you think about your car 
can you set that up to make it look like it's going to have a breakdown but it doesn't it's very strange um but it's a lot of action a lot of to and froing so it's quite fast quite frenetic uh but there is this escape from the enterprise and it just kind of shows that this crew is coming together and they've got that point um the ships all move away the the hexa hexagon pod ships that the Silibran are using, they are moving out of the way because they think the Enterprise is actually going to blow up. There's a moment where they're being chased and um, they've they've realised what the ruse was. Um, Archer uh, has come back through the time stream and he has double-kicked uh, Silic to the chest and taken him hostage, uh, blown up the device to make sure there's no uh, timey-wimey business and they could use it ever again. And uh, he manages to steal one of the hexagon pods and catch up with the Enterprise. He's keeping Silic on board as a prisoner, but then comes back to the Enterprise. And the day is sort of saved. And this is, I think, part of the the upset for the episode. Um, even if you were to watch with all of the temporal scenes still put in, so you saw Archer in the future and everything like that, because it gets uh, wrapped up so neatly in this neat little action bow, as a uh, my co-host Dan Huckfield, please get better Dan, um, has mentioned in the past, it, it gets wrapped up very very quickly, the action part of the story and the plot is over very very quickly I don't know, maybe it feels like that is disappointing and that's why part twos don't go so well That because it relies on the action as opposed to um, the, the typical Star Trek talk your way out of a problem uh, a single episode uh, does because it now is more actiony and they've got a bit more budget for a double episode, it feels like a cop out maybe, and that that's maybe where the the part two curse for a cliffhanger comes from. Um, it's just interesting, and but the action does propel us forward. And now I think we get into what is the best bit of the episode, as we get the justification for the Enterprise to continue its mission. Saval is straight in with saying, you know, this is implausible. He's also going on about the science directorate, um, that time travel is impossible. Trip does do the shout out and you know I was hoping that it was going away but he does kind of shout out when it's not really his turn to do so um, you know this is a very serious event any misspoken word or anything like that could have easily jeopardized the Enterprise mission and Trip is shouting out you know you've been trying to scrub this mission forever you're pathetic and blah, 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 blah. it's an understandable emotional outburst and yes that's how he's feeling on the inside but he doesn't seem to have that that way about him that he can read a situation. He can't re read the room very well. Um, it, it's a professional environment. If you're working in a group anywhere, an office, retail, anything like that, speaking out in that kind of way doesn't help anybody. And I think it, it is uh, one of the aspects of the character that grates on me. Um, and again, this is not a criticism of Conor Trittini and his acting. The way he portrays it, I believe it. I understand that the actor is saying the words, and I believe that that character is feeling that way. However, the character in the setting he is placed in a uh, somewhat militaristic, rigid structure, acting out that way, doesn't doesn't sit well with me. And, and I think it's one of the reasons why that character still grates on me i wouldn't like that character if i were working on a team with them because they don't have that that inner monologue the the one that sort of holds back the kind of opinions uh, and you know then comes back into the conversation 
a little bit more prepared, a little bit more diplomatically. When I'm in a team and there's that person who shouts out without thinking, without having that, that little judgment call in your head, I find that annoying in real life. So I find the character of Trip annoying. And that's really where my traitorid stems. So this is a tiny traitorid again. Probably a warp factor four in my traitorid if I'm you know giving it a scale. But there we go. Uh, Archer launches in with a very bizarre uh, trip to East Africa in his early 20s to go and see a gazelle story talking about stumbling and falling and we're going to learn and now it gives us a great quote about you know we're going to stumble we're going to fall we're going to learn but of all the stories to tell uh, you know they they couldn't make a reference back to Henry Archer um, making mistakes you know uh, tinkering with the engine I mean of everything that's happened in Archer's life they called back to a gazelle story that we've had no build-up to whatsoever. He's never mentioned before micro-singularities. And he he doesn't talk about Henry failing to build the first engine. You know, he tested it. He tested it again. He tested it again. It kept failing on him, but he kept on going. If you're writing that character, to have it something that has not only addressed him, addressed his father, who has been an emotional... Uh, anchor point for the character the the way his father has been working when he was talking about making history with every light year calling back to his dad again in the same two-parter um, it would have kept it going the gazelle story just seemed odd um, wonderful beautiful lovely bit of imagery but odd and Saval even points that out he says well it's a lovely story but does it address the consequences Maybe I should take that little soundbite and put it in for our uh, jingle for our consequences section. Who knows? Um, but the best moment is T'Pol. T'Pol actually comes and stands up for the Earth-led Starfleet Enterprise mission. Um, she talks about we've learned from our own mistakes. You know, we've made things up and held them back. We've uh, created the listening post in the Andorian incident, which led to Shadows of Bajem. It's hardly a uniquely human trait to make mistakes. And Saval storms out. Saval is acting very emotional in these episodes. I, I will say he's, he's not a typical Vulcan. And I know we've said this a, a lot in season one. So is there such a thing as a typical Vulcan? Uh, you know, so many Vulcans have been acting so wildly and different in uh, this entire season that maybe there is no such thing as a typical Vulcan. Oh, there we go. Um, but it's the last little scene to pole and Archer. Archer comes into the quarters. Uh, he makes a weird illusion that there's an ensign who saw him coming in. And then to pole says, I think she's very discreet. And where's that going? Like, why did they worry? Why is that even a joke between them? That there might be some romantic interest going on and that there'll be rumors spreading around the ship. I, I don't know. Just it's very weird. Again, is it just the teenagers in the writer's room like oh look that they, they might have like a little sexy relationship oh i don't know but it's very weird but it leads to the best part of the scene where they're talking about how she was the one who put it over the top by having a vulcan stand up for them and go to bat for them she was the one who convinced them to keep the enterprise's mission going and more importantly she still doesn't believe in time travel and we end at 41 minutes and 58 seconds the end of the episode that's it we've located two episodes a record for temporal trek the first time we've done two separate in uh, episodes under one banner but it is a two-parter so it kind of counts anyway so 
We have located the point in time and it's now into ratings criteria. We have C for continuity in our LCARS system. Continuity are the things that uh, happen because there are timey-wimey elements of this episode. Is there anything that could impact the future? And I'm going to say no because uh, Daniel's um, you know, sending Archer back, resetting the timeline uh, as far as he's concerned and he being an representative of the temporal investigations and temporal uh, aspect of Starfleet in the 31st century would have known. If something had gone wrong and there had been a time split, uh, he would have corrected for that. By sending back Archer, he is correcting the time flow. So uh, continuity, I don't see any problems. Consequences. Now, uh, in terms of just the episode happening in 2152, none of the future aspects are there things that could be drafted up from this episode that will change how Starfleet operates? Well, uh, Reed seems to be able to fire the phasers at warp speed, so there we go. Maybe if you're looking to uh, get there as fast as possible, go as fast as possible. Go up to warp 5, go to the top engine specs when you need to get somewhere. That would be quite helpful. Um, there are uh, uh, new ways of communicating around the ship as uh, Trip has been able to use the intercom system in a new and unique way. Uh, so there's lots of operational sides to the ship and there's a capability that they have gained as well in having the quantum beacons. So we can now detect cloaked Sulaban ships uh, and that's a nice little added bit of technology. They've learned something new. They've learned an element of quantum engineering that was beyond them. Now this comes back to continuity again. Has Daniel screwed with the continuity? Um, so going back to our continuity rating, by giving them quantum technology, has he propelled Starfleet's ability to do at least uh, cloak detection uh, to a new level that they didn't have before? Now I'm going to go know that he hasn't screwed it up purely because Daniel's being involved and I'm sorry if I sound like a, a broken record but because Daniel's is involved this may have been a technology that was already figured out in the 2152s um, so I'm gonna go with if he was okay with giving him that advantage uh, you know he might get a slap on the wrist uh, if uh, our temporal investigations buddies go and uh, investigate him and, and go and interview him but it doesn't seem like a, any violation of any temporal codes here. A is for alterations, expansions, things you'd want to see differently. Now, I've talked a long time about my uh, wish that Season 1 had been a different focus. Uh, so I'm not going to go into that. That's obviously all detailed in the episodes and the season that's been. Um, alterations, things I would have changed. Yes, the Hoshi and the T'Pol um, creepy trek elements. You know, it's not even sexy Trek anymore. It really is creepy. The way that there is this fascination with getting women either down to their vest tops or even out of their vest tops. It's, it's horrible. You watch the episodes and it's just cringeworthy. Um, you'd expect it from older TV shows. But, you know, this was just 20 years ago and it feels so dated. It seems like such a, um, a horrible way to treat the episode if if this were a show that was based around uh women getting naked all the time and it's part of it um my wife and i were watching uh, banshee which is a very very sexy show uh fi finished a few years ago but there's quite a lot of naked women in that and that doesn't feel 
as exploitative. There is an exploitative element to it because there is that kind of, you know, women are all you know, uh, naked all the time and blah, 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 blah. But it's built into the show that there's that element to it. You know, it's down, it's dirty, that sort of thing. Whereas in Enterprise, the way it's filmed, the way it's blocked, the way the producers make the show, it feels exploitative and uh, is is a shame. It really is a shame because it does bring down what would otherwise be an interesting action-y two-part episode. But as far as uh, alterations, that is my biggest one there. Um, I think the action flows really well for the episode. I think everything is believable. All the character reactions are pretty much there. Um, Archer probably wouldn't been as defeated, but if he isn't defeated, it doesn't lead into this switch around and, and his more hopeful get up and go uh, later on in the episode. So as it stands, I really enjoy the episode. Next is R on our recommendations. Um, do we recommend Star Trek fans? Yes, because it's the end of season one. Yes, it's a resolution of sorts to the beginning of the the temporal cold war arc we are seeing uh, things moving from just silicon archer to maybe a wider context there's more going on um, the machinations of future guy might be different next time we see them but overall is it the best maybe two-parter from all of star trek and without watching the future elements and just focusing on the 2152 parts of the episode, it loses something. There's there's not as much um, danger. There's not as much stakes, high stakes, without us knowing the context later. So part of doing Temple Trek, as we do with timestamps and, and watching it in order... I was hoping to see if it changes the nature of the episode, and I think it does. By having the future context, by having Archer just disappear from the episode for a short time, it really does change it. And looking at it from just the perspective of the 2152 people and the characters that are left in that time period, it, it does change it, and it lacks a certain uh, impact that we don't normally get. We don't learn anything about what's going to happen to the future and uh, where Starfleet might be. Um, as far as we know, Archer went to the future and there was wonderful shining technology everywhere. There wasn't really a big problem. Yes, we find out that Archer says that there's no technology where he is, but what if he went to a desolate planet? What if they were somewhere else? It just It's never explained where he is in the future, just when. So, for that reason, I am just about recommending it to Star Trek fans but it's a very slim recommendation to non-Star Trek fans is it essential Star Trek to perhaps get people into it again watching only these timed stamps not watching all of it with all the context and again it loses that stake element without watching all of season one first you wouldn't really get this element and you wouldn't get why Enterprise gets to carry on with its mission and it's so heavily reliant on you watching season one first. I don't think I could recommend to Star Trek fan uh, to a non-Star Trek fan to get them in. I don't think I could recommend to a non-Star Trek fan to get them in in that brainwashing kit. So for non-Star Trek fans, there is no recommendation here. And that is it. 
a solo episode. I've gone on far too long. I'm coming up at two hours, and that's before editing time, so fingers crossed I can get it down a bit lower than that. Uh, but as always, thank you so much for listening to this. Uh, we've seen out season one. Uh, once he is well, uh, Dan and Huckfield and myself, we were going to be doing a season one retrospective. So we've done 2151 as the Invernet Universe year. We're then going to do a season one retrospective shortly, and that will be on Nexus Nights um, uh, soon. But join me next week on our setup as you come back at season three, episode 28 of the podcast and season two, episode two of Enterprise as we go back to Carbon Creek, the episode, but this time only focusing on the events that happen in the year 2152. So join me next time at zero minutes, zero seconds for Carbon Creek. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in the next time stream. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen to it. If you would like to be a guest in the future or give feedback, you can contact me by either searching for the Temporal Trek Podcast Facebook page or find me on Twitter at Rider underscore Coattail. Also search the Temporal Trek Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at Daniel underscore Hitch underscore Writer. Scripted elements of the show are a work of pure fan fiction and any views and opinions expressed in the episode discussions are my own or that of the guest. They do not reflect the rights holders of Star Trek. Any Star Trek sound effects or music are used under the terms of fair use and are not my own work. The intro music, Birthright by Audio Binger, is royalty-free from the Free Music Archive. Check out their work and others at freemusicarchive.com. The Temple Trek is a free podcast with no Patreon or sponsorship. However, if you would like to support the show, you can find my books by searching Daniel Peter Hitch on Amazon. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you in the next time stream.